The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for the privilege, and it is a privilege, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together before your word, to hear it, to read it, to see it in our own language, and to understand something of your mind, something of the world that we live in, something of who you are and and who we are and what's coming. It is a privilege. It's hard for us to imagine because we have grown up around it and and many of us are, are so familiar with it, but it is hard for us to imagine then what it would be like to be completely unaware. To be unaware of, of your nature and of your ways. To be unaware of our own natures. How we are before you and what's coming. You've not left us unaware, though, Lord. You have spoken, and we say thank you for that. And I pray that as we look at this passage today before us, in all of its length and potential confusion, would you please make the path clear and keep us from getting lost in the weeds? You have done us a a marvelous kindness giving this to us, and now I pray that, Spirit of God, today you would you would clarify it for us, that you would explain what's here, what's been given. And you'd show it to us in a way that's helpful and encouraging and upbuilding and, and perhaps provocative and perhaps spurs us on, perhaps corrects us or rebukes us even. These are the various things you're up to all the time in your word. So do that today with this passage too. Help us to hear you. Would you speak, please, Lord, in a way that's clear? Would you clear away all distraction? And would you help me, especially, to explain what's, what's difficult? Help us to, to be listeners after you, to grow up into Christ-likeness. And Father, for those here who don't know you, if there are some here who don't know you, would you speak to them in ways that are winsome and are encouraging? Would you invite them to come and would you show them the great, great importance of coming? in light of what is coming. So make clear your word, Lord. Build your kingdom. Spirit, would you honor Jesus this morning, that through him we might honor the Father and grow up into him. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. It's in the hope of Christ that we pray. It's in view of his coming that we pray. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 21. We've been following Jesus here in what is the last week of his earthly life here in Jerusalem, a time marked by much teaching, but also marked by a whole bunch of tension between him and and the crowds at large, but especially between Jesus and the leadership. The religious leaders of the people are decidedly against him and are looking for a way to destroy him. They've reached that conclusion. They're just trying to figure out how. And so far, their tactic has been to lay out verbal traps related to theology and law and try to, to pounce on him if he were to miss, create a misstep there. But he has eluded all their traps. And as we saw last week, he kind of turned the tables on them and, and put something before them that was difficult to trip, trip them up. He asked them how the Messiah could be both David's son, descendant, which he is, And also someone David calls Lord, which he does. Quoted for them Psalm 110. How can he be son of David and Lord of David? That's laid before them and laid before us as well, not to trip us up, but to make us think about it, to to think about and to reckon with the lordship, the full authority and rule, the full deity of this Christ his power to rule from heaven 
Lord and the goal of that rule, the, the, the goal of the Messiah. What's the Messianic king about? He's about, you could put it in two words, deliverance and establishment. Delivering his people from evil into life and the establishing of the righteous kingdom of God. That's why he is ruler, why he is Lord. He's got a purpose in that. So we see he's, he's the Lord Christ. He is the one who rules to deliver and to establish. And then two examples follow of how we should respond to that. Not in self-centered pride like the scribes, but in all of life's surrender like the widow who gave this great offering of not just money, but she gave all of her life. So she put all of her living in, all of her life, she put it all on the table. Because that's what's required. That's what's appropriate when faced with a king like Jesus. And it's what's enabled when faced with a king like Jesus. He's, he's the Lord again. He, he demands everything, all of us on the table, everything we have in front of him. And that's okay. The widow can put in everything she has confident that tomorrow, tomorrow, I don't know where it's coming from, but tomorrow he will give me my daily bread because he's Lord and he's a deliverer. It's what's required and what is enabled by the fact that Jesus the Christ is God. He's trustworthy and good, so we can do what he requires, put everything on the table. That was last week, and that, that ended the back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders. They kind of gave up. They, they pull away. But all that was going on in the temple, and it's the, the presence of the temple that leads us to our passage for today, because at some point or another, someone made a comment on the temple. Now, if we were to look at Matthew and Mark, this is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'd see that their accounts of this discussion, this, this discourse, they are both longer and more detailed. They, they go other places. They say other things. Luke, our focus, as usual, is, is more succinct. But we find out from the other places that how this went down was that someone at some point as they were traveling out of the city every day, we see the end of our passage, they, they spent the night on the Mount of Olivet outside of the city and would come back in the day. And sometime, somehow, they're passing back out of the city and somebody marvels at the building and all of its grandeur. Which really is a comment about the majesty and the power and the glory of the God and the people who have such a building. Somebody marvels, Jesus hears that and makes a provocative comment himself, which sits and probably kind of stirs in their minds for a little while, and they can't figure out what he meant. So when they get out to the Mount of Olives, they follow up with that, just like Jesus intended. And so this is called, in various places, the, the Olivet Discourse, because they're actually outside of the city when this takes place, this conversation. Jesus intended to trigger this teaching. And he did so because he means for, for them and for us, his people, to hear this, to help us live in faith and in real hope after the coming cross, which, understand, they don't understand is coming. They don't think that still, not yet. They, they think that what's coming is immediate deliverance and something else is going to happen. He knows that. And so he wants to help them and all the rest of us to live in this time. And so he triggers this conversation. But before we go to this lengthy discourse here and, and look at it, there are some preliminaries that we have to deal with. And dealing with the preliminaries is going to take us a moment and in a lot of ways, this is just a little heads up. This is going to be an unusual sermon in some ways because I have some lengthy preliminaries to deal with, which are important. I would suggest that not dealing with, not thinking about the preliminaries is what's led a whole bunch of us into some difficulty with this passage because we don't come to it prepared to read it properly understanding what's, what's going on. So we've got to deal with some preliminaries, and then the passage itself is very long, so we've got to deal with the passage. And then after that, I'm going to make two observations. So hopefully, we packed a lunch. 
No, I'm kidding. I, I will, I mean, the, the observation is going to be very short, really just applications of what we'll see as we'll walk through it. But there is a lot to deal with here, and so there is a high chance I'm not going to deal with every little detail. But we do need to look at some preliminaries first. We need to keep in mind the purpose of Jesus and the questions that he is answering, which may not be the goals and questions that we have or the goals and questions that we think are being discussed. We, we start talking about end times things. Lots of questions come to mind, some of them very legitimate, some of them spoken about elsewhere, but not here. So if we're going to be faithful listeners to this passage in Luke, we've got to attend to Luke, see what's here from Jesus. Additionally, we have to approach this section with some prior knowledge. Being aware that this discourse, all of the rest of this chapter, in its style and content, very closely resembles the Old Testament prophets. And it takes up a very familiar topic for them. Coming judgment. Frequently, you read the Old Testament, you especially read the Old Testament prophets, they deal with judgment a lot. Very often called the day of the Lord or, or the coming days, the day, etc., etc. Very often, Judgments, situations in time and place are used to connect to, to point forward to, to prophesy about a coming great day when there will be a great and final climactic act of God to judge all of his enemies, wipe away evil, and bring in deliverance for his people. To bring in the kingdom of Messiah, to bring in the resurrection. All these things in different ways in different places are very frequent through the Old Testament prophets, the day of the Lord. And Jesus is going to be speaking on that familiar topic, and we're tipped off to that by how he opens with a pronouncement about the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. God made for the destruction of the temple and the city once before in history a great catastrophic judgment against Israel and the land, the city, the destruction of the temple, it was a catastrophe. The people slaughtered and those who weren't slaughtered carried away into exile and everything raised to the ground. God had said if they continue to resist him, continue to resist him, continue to resist him, he would come in judgment. The day of the Lord would come and wipe them out. And it happened. A number of centuries before this point. And his disciples think, when they hear that's happening again, now with Messiah present, it must be the end, the end, the end, the end. The final day, right? So, Jesus, when? When are these things going to happen? That's what they ask. So they're going to be talking about a familiar topic here from the Old Testament, and Jesus is going to discuss it in a familiar way. With a very familiar, if you've read the Old Testament, pattern of communication, he's going to talk like the prophets talk. With a, a manner of communication sometimes called prophetic telescoping. Think of a telescope. If you get a, if you get a telescope, it's about... if you. If you've seen an you know, old movie or something like that, you've seen a, a spyglass or a telescope that's about this long, and then the captain of the ship extends it out, and it's actually, it's actually, actually that long. It's all there, but you don't know how long it actually is until it gets extended out. And then you think, it's, it's that long? No, it goes further. No, it goes further. And then it's collapsed back. That's how the Old Testament prophets speak about this day in a way that makes it hard to tell exactly how far away all these events are from one another and how they all relate. If you stand here and you look at the mountain ranges around us, you see a peak, and behind it you see another ridge, and you know that's further off and that's higher, but I don't really know how far and how high. 
if I do this, you can't tell until you look at it like this. That's how the mountains are. That's how the prophets are. That's prophetic telescoping. They speak like that all the time in the Old Testament. And Jesus is speaking like that today. The future all crammed together with little way to tell how far off one thing is from another in time because timeline is not the point. Timeline is not the point. It often is the point for us, and it is not the point for anybody in the Bible. Let me be clear on that. Jesus is going to talk about the day of deliverance and vengeance that began already when he first came and is not yet over. It has already started. The day of the Lord, the day of deliverance and vengeance has already started, but it is not yet over. So far, that day is about 2,000 years long and counting. See the telescoping there. How long is it going to be by the time it's done? Not sure. It's not the point. It has dawned and it's going on. How can we live in it? That's Jesus' purpose to help his people live in it. And he's going to do that. He's going to help us with that by pointing out a few of the mountain peaks as they come and as they go. to give us some evidence, to give us little things to fasten on to, kind of like when somebody gives you directions to a place that you've never been to before and you don't have any idea where you're going. But as the first one, okay, you're going to pass a blue building on the right. Oh, there it is. We're, must be on the right track. Then there's going to be a great big intersection with a McDonald's. Oh, here it is. I'm on the right track, and the person who told me the directions knows where I'm going. Jesus is going to offer up a few things here. As they come and go, we see, I'm on the right track, and he knows where I'm going. I can trust him. I can walk in faith and in hope. There are more peaks to come, and he will come. With that all in mind, let's read the passage. I'm going to read it first, verses 5 to 11. This is Luke 21 beginning verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. <laughs> is that in this passage? <laughs> There's a little button on the side, the off button, maybe. <laughs> Verse 10 of Luke 21. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Jesus brings up the destruction of the temple and really the whole city, just like he did back in chapter 19. He's already said this before, this week, in fact. Not one stone left upon another. Everything around here is going to be destroyed. He brings it up so that they will then ask, when? When will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? These things, they say, plural. Because they have in mind everything related to the destruction of the buildings and the day of judgment that they think surely is coming. 
It's here. It has to be. They're still thinking he's the Messiah and that it's all going to go down right now. It's about to set up an earthly kingdom. So they aren't thinking about any further telescope and they aren't thinking about any further mountain peaks. They think they're at the last ridge, about to, about to summit. And Jesus knows they aren't. There is time yet to come in the day. And so to help them, he tells them what they shouldn't find significant because it signifies nothing. This is what life in the day is like. However long it is, this is what life in the day is. It's chaotic. It's troubled. Much tribulation. So don't be led astray. There's going to be plenty of opportunity to be led astray off the path by people. Lots of people are going to say things and try to lead you. You're going to think, if Jesus was the Messiah, then this would all be good and fine and right and happy, but there's chaos and war and trouble. He must have been wrong. And along is going to come somebody who's going to say, yeah, he was wrong. Follow me. I'll make it all right. I'm the one. Don't buy that. Trouble and hardship and chaos and war is the way it is for a while. That's what the world fallen is, and I'm not going to change that for a while. There will be time, verses 10 and 11, war and trouble and natural disasters regularly and continually. And you can't discern anything from any of that with regards to when. When is it? Now, we can look at and should look at every great stroke of evil in the world and every natural disaster and every hurricane, every single one of those things, and there are some things we can learn. We, we can see in a great storm the power of God, and we can see in calamity and war and chaos and nation rising its nation. We can see evil for sure. And this is meant to, to trigger us, to testify in us. There is a problem, and there will be, there must be, there has to be a reckoning, and there will be a reckoning with one who is almighty. We look at storm after storm after storm after storm, and we should know, like a drop in the bucket, no big deal, to the one who is almighty, the one with whom we have to deal. There's a testimony to the world in every single wickedness, in every single evil, in every single trouble, in every single heartache. But the message in them is not, now's the end. There will be, at some point, a last war and a last hurricane. We won't know that until afterwards. Jesus then follows the discussion of the world with his discussion about his people, verse 12. But before all this, before the end, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The world is going to be chaotic, troubled at war, and for God's faithful followers, in a word, there will be persecution. The world at large, even non-believing family members, verse 16, will lay hands on you. The religious leadership mentions the synagogue there because he's speaking obviously to a Jewish audience. Will persecute you. The state will persecute you. Kings and governors, verse 12. There will be trouble because of nation warring against nation. and There will be trouble because of natural disasters. 
But this, more than that, there will be trouble for you in particular for my name's sake, he says twice. Wait. But I follow the king. And these people will throw me in jail and kill me? Yeah. Yes. That's what Jesus is saying. That's going to happen as an opportunity for you to witness about me. I'm going to come in you into those court settings and into those back alleys where people jump you, and I'm going to come into those jail cells, and I, through you, will put words of wisdom and power into your mouth that they will not be able to withstand, and my name will go forth as you suffer for my name's sake. That's the way it's going to be. Opportunity for you. And some of you will be killed, but you won't perish. There's a difference. That's sobering. Promised in a way. That's coming. That's what life in the day is like. And its presence means nothing about the end. Is the end here or not? You can't tell from that. But here's what is a clue. Here's how you can tell, verse 20. Reading verse 20 to the end of the chapter now. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Uh, now he's answered the question. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity, because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So he has discussed various wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. This is going to go on and on and on. But, verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, now is the time. Know then that its desolation has come near. Run. Don't run to the city, run away from it. It'd be common back then to run to the city because cities have walls, they're defensive fortresses, they're safe, right? He's saying no because it's going to be destroyed. It'll be surrounded and destroyed. Run away from the city. 
For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that was written. Drawing on imagery from the Old Testament, it's written back then that if and as the people of Israel would, if they would, resist God and resist God and resist God, he would bring finally in the end judgment. He did it once. He said he'd do it again. And it is now coming to pass. Just like Jesus said in chapter 19, weeping, he repeats it again here. Promises it, in fact. There will be wrath against this people because they missed the time of their visitation. They rejected the Messiah. And so there will be distress over all of the earth as they are led out captive into all the nations in Jerusalem, all the people of ethnic Israel, trampled underfoot. Forever? No. Trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. End of verse 24. We touched on this before, but it's worth pointing out again here for two reasons. The rest of the New Testament... We could look in particular at Romans, and then we could look in particular at Romans 9, 10, and 11. The rest of the New Testament makes clear, reinforces for us, that God in his deep wisdom is behind this rejection by Israel of the Messiah so as to drive the message of him, the good news, the gospel about what the Messiah has done, to drive it out into all the Gentile nations so as to gather into the kingdom of God Gentiles from every tongue and tribe and people. That will go on for a time, and then it will end. And when that time is completed, then God will stir up large numbers of ethnic Jews again, and they will turn and embrace the Messiah, come back, and there will be one people of God, Gentile and Jew, together beneath Messiah. That's alluded to right here in this mention of a time in which Jerusalem is trampled down, ethnic Israel contra ethnic Gentiles, but not forever. There is a, there is a future hope for ethnic Jewish people. That's the first reason we need to be clear about that here. But secondly, it's worth pointing out this time because it makes very clear that Jesus is still talking about, still answering the original question about the destruction of the temple and the city. The time of the Gentiles follows the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction that happened in 70 A.D. Forty years on after this point, 70 A.D., rebellion against Rome finally caught up and Rome put its foot down on Judea. In the course of a couple-year war, by one estimate, and who can tell if the estimate's actually true, by one estimate, about a million people died in Judea and another 100,000 or so carried off into exile, and the city was destroyed. That happened. That's what Jesus is talking about here. We know that's what he's talking about because that's the question that he's answering, and that comes before the period of the Gentiles. But that destruction, from a Jewish perspective, again, that is the end of the world. So they hear that, and in their minds, it's, so that's the end, the end, right? No, until the time of the Gentiles is complete. There's a period to come after that. You see the telescoping in there. How long is that? I don't know, but there's a period there. There's more to come. So, watch what I'm doing here. Until the time of the Gentiles is complete, I'm going to put that over here on a table. We're going to come back to that, but we're not going to deal with it right now. Until the time of the Gentiles is complete. 
because we need to hold in the context. We need to stay on, uh, if you will, on this mountain peak and talk about what's here before we talk about that one. But there's another ridge coming. So staying here, something left over there on the table, but staying here, the destruction in 70 A.D. is indeed cataclysmic, especially for Jesus' listeners. We often take it for granted. And what we do very often is we skip right on ahead in verse 25. I mean, how many times have we done this? You've probably read this passage. If you're a Christian, you've read this passage, and we skip right ahead to verse 25, and we think that's the second coming of Jesus. Well, let me put second coming of Jesus over here on the table too. I'm going to deal with this. Not now. Hold in this context here. They read, they hear Jesus say, destruction and that is the end. It would change everything for them. Really hard to hear. Total paradigm shift. Which is what verses 25 and following are about. We have to read 25 and following in conjunction with what he just said, 24 and prior. He just talked about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is catastrophic. It would sound to us like, okay, we're an American audience here. If somebody were to say to you, North Korea is going to destroy the United States with a nuclear attack. It's going to happen, and the United States is going to cease to exist. You almost can't even imagine that. We can imagine the United States hurt. We can imagine like 9-11 ramped up, ramped up, ramped up, ramped up, but we can't imagine the United States gone. No more. None of us, none of our houses, none of our cities, none of our history, it's just gone. You almost can't even imagine that. What's the world like without the United States of America? What's Jesus' audience's world like without Jerusalem, without Judea? It's the world turned upside down. It's earth-shattering. It would be like the constellations in the sky, which are permanent, right, being gone. Like the sun, which always shines every morning, 6 a.m. it comes up, Nope, it's darkened, it's gone. The moon is the opposite light, right? Nope, over. 25 and 26, that's what those things are saying in 25 and 26. Signs in the sky, sun, moon, and stars altered. Roaring oceans and terror among people about what is happening. This is language again from the Old Testament, right out of the Old Testament. Countless places. In fact, if you were to look at Mark's account of this, and if you had the NIV, you'd see this in print. They actually print this section differently to make clear to you this is a quotation from two places in the prophet Isaiah where he's talking about the judgment of other nations like Babylon, stuff that already happened. It's again and again and again and again all through the Old Testament prophets. This is language that says... World turned upside down, catastrophe, cosmic shakeup, a metaphorical new world order. Nothing is ever going to be the same. That's, what's, that's how it's used in the Old Testament. That's how other cultures, when they spoke just like this, that's what they meant. That's what Jesus means. Something for his listeners to watch for and be alerted to, but not surprised by, but even strangely encouraged by. Because what happens? Something's going to be shattered and flipped upside down and made totally different. What is that? That's what he just said. Israel and the city and the temple, the house of God on earth, gone. 
Mosaic worship then, gone. You can't actually have biblical Judaism without the temple. It's over. The city of the king, where God's Messiah is and where God's throne is, raised. Wasn't that all God's doing? Didn't God, didn't God do all that? God's chosen people and God's chosen place with God's chosen house. That's the whole structure of the Old Testament. Gone. It's the world turned upside down and replaced with what? Verse 27. And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Which again is from the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7. Maybe you're familiar with that, but if you were to look at that place and see Daniel chapter 7, we, we right away, again, this is where we think second coming. Still got my table over here that's still on the table. But read it in its context. Read it in Daniel 7's context. What we have there, we have the Son of Man, which Jesus has made completely clear. That's me. We have the Son of Man. In that chapter, he is the representative head of the saints, the people of God. And the Son of Man comes with the saints, comes on a cloud to where? To heaven. Comes on a cloud to the presence of the Ancient of Days. And he with his people there is given a kingdom to reign over in great glory and power forever and ever. This is the Messiah with his saints coming into a kingdom, seated at the right hand and reigning while Jerusalem and the temple lie in ashes and dust. That's the world turned upside down that Jesus is saying is coming. And he tells them to look, to watch for that. When you see that happening, when you see that come about, lift up your back and your head and know that your redemption is drawing near. When you see the city surrounded and torn down, you see the Old Testament paradigm shifted and a new one come, me, Jesus, enthroned and the kingdom full of Gentiles spreading in power and glory over all the earth. Know your redemption is drawing near. Take heart, hope. Read the signs. Look at trees when they bud into leaf. You know summer's coming. The kingdom of God is near when you see the city laid low and the king exalted. This is going to happen in your lifetime, he says. I tell you, this generation will not pass away until it's taken place. And it happened in their lifetime. The king ascended into heaven took his saints with him. We are seated there now with him and he reigns and the kingdom is. Look at the signs. So, your position, pastor, is that all of this is all about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's already all happened. You're a preterist. Or some other word. I can hear somebody thinking that. Let me go over here to my table, grab the stuff I put on the table, and come back and say yes and no. Let me remind you of the telescope, mountain ranges, yes and no. This already happened. The day has already come. It happened in that generation. And it's not yet fully happened. Remember what's on the table there. It has not yet been completed. The time of the Gentiles has already come, but is not yet completed. The redemption of God's people has already drawn near, but is not yet completed. The, the kingdom is, he is seated at the right hand. He is the king. He is reigning. The kingdom is Redemption is happening. He is drawing in his people from all the nations, but he hasn't finished that all yet. And even the redemption and the ones he has drawn in isn't over. 
The kingdom is at hand, but we still pray, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, because it isn't yet in fullness. And while he has already come to heaven on a cloud in great glory and power, and the world sees him now reigning and sees the effect of his power as his spirit runs and his word cannot be resisted, and the disciples with their very own eyes saw him ascend to heaven on a cloud, yet the angel said to them, in the same way that he went, he will come again. He will come in the clouds and descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Because the day will come. you who have stayed true to him, to watch for him expectantly, you will straighten up and raise your head in hope as your redemption draws near and you see it approach. The kingdom in its fullness. As certain as his promised first coming to earth was, as certain as his promised destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was, as certain as his heavenly coming and his reign, as certain as the spreading of the gospel into all the Gentile nations, the irresistibility of his word is, as certain as the continuing trouble and chaos in this world is, so too his word is certain it will never pass away. He will come again and finish the day. He has come and he is yet to come. Look at the signs of the things that have happened and believe that when he says there is a time yet to be completed, there is a coming yet to come and there is a fullness yet to be fulfilled, trust him. brings me to the two observations. Both of which apply to everyone living in the day, whether you lived back then in the day, whether you live now. If it's another thousand years, it'll apply then too. These are brief. Watch that you not be drawn away from living in light of the end. Watch that you not be drawn away from living in light of the end. We see this in Jesus' first warning at the very beginning, verse 8, see that you are not led astray, as well as at the end in his conclusion, verses 34 and 35. In verse 8, the danger is people who may deceive us. And in 34, it's everything else. So people and everything else. Watch. We probably won't meet people who overtly call themselves the Messiah. That's probably not going to be something we, we face, but we will find and encounter all sorts of false hopes offered to us for our deliverance, false messianic hopes. We commonly look at a world in which there is trouble and chaos. We look at our own lives in which there is trouble and chaos. And we think, we are tempted to think by our hearts, by what's even within us, let alone what's outside of us, this can't be right. There must be something else. If, if this was right, then my marriage would be, my job would be, my health would be, my, my culture, my country, this, this world would be, but it isn't. So something, there's got to be something else. I must have missed it. I must be off. There must be more. 
And along will come someone or something that will say, you know, you're right. Here's what will fix what ails you. There will be politicians that come along. Interestingly, if, if you've read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a biography written by, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, recent large biography, it talks about this was behind Hitler, in fact. The rise of a, of a political healer of the land who will make the country great again. Watch for that. Politicians will offer that constantly. And watch for financial offers. This is what will make your life good and sound and safe. Financial opportunities and investment plans and prosperity teaching even in churches. It's deliverance by finance. Or religious teachings. Following this, that, or the other. There, very commonly, Christianity comes to a place and then all kinds of other religions, false religions and cults, piggyback on the back of it because people hear of a deliverance offered in Christ and they say, yes, and they find, he didn't fix what I wanted fixed. And along comes the other religion, the cult or whatever behind it. You're right, because you kind of got a little bit wrong here. The Bible is true. Jesus is the Messiah. And trouble and, trouble and hardship in life is no evidence that he isn't. In fact, it's evidence that he is. He promised it. So watch that. Watch yourself that you not be lured away. Are you watching that dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life not grow up like a weed and choke out your heart? Turn you off, dull you to the truth. Persecution may be a piece of that, but I think that more than the, the fear of persecution, he alerts us to that, we should be aware of that, but in America today, I think more than the fear of persecution, probably Pinterest and Amazon Prime are more deadly to us right now. Probably. We are in danger from distraction, for being lulled into a, this kind of vision and a living for the things that are here, a finding life in what's posted by this person then and what's offered over here and what I can purchase that way. And commerce and the pleasures and the triviality offered in that becomes what I'm living for. And life then dissipates. It runs through your fingers like sand. And your senses are dulled. And you forget there's more to life than this life. We grow dull. And we cannot hear the approach of what is barreling down on us. Eternity. Eternity. Watch yourself. Verse 34. Watch yourself lest your hearts be weighed down. Watch yourself and watch where your heart is pulled. It is easy to become dulled and to not live in light of the end, to not live in light of the life that is coming, which is the second observation, second point. Here's the second one. Endure in faith, praying in light of the promised coming life. Endure in faith, praying in light of the promised coming life. See how this, this second observation points us forward. In light of what's coming, and it's, they're paired together. The first one is a don't do this. Watch yourself that you don't be like this. Well, wh what am I going to do with that? that that's, that's a command. It's good and right. It's, it's the law given to me. It's a danger that I face. What am I going to do with that? And always, 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 Jesus is so sweet in this way. Always he, he offers to us the positive alternative. Don't get sucked in and lured and dulled and dissipated and miss because there's something coming. Look at that and live for that. It's coming. The life that is to come. 
Look and live in faith, hoping in that one to come. A life that he promises. Praying. Stay awake praying. We're praying for what? For help from the king. That by his spirit, he may give you strength to escape all the things that are coming. To to escape. It means like to not be there at the end? To escape the hurricane? No, that's not what he means. He means to escape so that you'll stand before the Son of Man. Escape to stand before the Son of Man to be judged? No. Escape to stand before the Son of Man after the judgment. To stand and not fall. Pray for strength to escape the lures, the temptations, the traps, so that you can stand What he's capturing here, what he's getting at, is that difference that we noted between death and perishing. You notice that back in 16, 17, 18. They'll put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. By your endurance, you will stand. If you have the strength to endure, you will come through the judgment. God, give me strength. That's the prayer. Stay awake praying for strength. God, give me strength. That's the the need. I need strength from you. I'm not strong enough to do this myself. Help, give me strength. How's he going to give you strength? It's obviously not physical muscles. He's going to give you strength in heart to see the false hope of this world and to see the life that is coming. And one of the ways he'll do that, give you strength, is to put a passage like this in front of your eyes and show you, I am about something. There is a plan here. And step after step after step has happened. This one, it's not determined how long it is. But those have come. Those have come. Trust me for this. There is a life I will bring to you. My word is sure. Give me strength, Father, by your Spirit. Give me strength to see that and to believe it. To believe that all of my life on the table, all in for you, is to put myself in the hands of a king who reigns and is good, 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 good to me. May God give you strength to see that and to believe it. And to live through this day of trouble. Persevering to the end. Do not fear and shrink back. Your redemption draws near, coming on the clouds soon. May God the Spirit so work in your heart as to make this seem true to you, because it is. And to make everything else that seems so demanding of your attention to seem hollow and empty, temporary and passing, fleeting, as it is. There is something glorious coming for you. Live for it. Press after it. He open your eyes and cause you to see. That's what I'm going to pray for here now at the end. This is a long passage. I'm sure I missed the point that you were most interested in. But please see why it's here. Jesus is a couple days from the cross and tremendous disappointment for his people. And he wants to remind us of the flow of history to help us to see that he is at work powerfully and to believe him to come again to finish it. Do not be put off by the trouble. Hope through it based on what he promises you. Let me pray. Father, would you help us to understand what you mean for us to understand. Help us to understand what you mean for us to understand. Help us to let go of what you don't mean for us to be, to be understanders of at this point. And in your people, please, Father, would you stir up hope. Even amidst trouble and chaos and persecution and temptation, 
Show us your hand and your plan in that. Will you move in us to be people who watch ourselves and who pray for your help to hope? This is my request of you, Father. Would you make us a people who watch ourselves and who pray for help to hope? Would you build your church here Make us a faithful people and a strong people. People who are content in your hand, who are happy in this life because of the hope that we have in you. Who look forward to your coming and see it even now as as drawing near. This is not in us, Lord, so please help us. Build us up. Grow your church. Call in from the nations all around. Call in more. This is our prayer. Thank you. You're trustworthy and good. We put it in your hands and leave it there. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.